0: Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series in which I get the opportunity to talk to really interesting people in greater detail than Time Allows Me on The Last Word in Today FM to get into the stories of their successes in life and also the more difficult moments which gave them the motivation to carry on and do as they have done. Magnified, Matt Cooper is sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. So on today's edition of the podcast, I'm talking to an entrepreneur who has seen... Things go against her on a number of occasions, things completely outside of her control, genuine global world events, because she works in the travel agents business, a business which also has had to deal with the competition provided by people doing it for themselves on the internet when it comes to booking their holidays. But she also has had personal trauma to deal with, a near-death experience having been crushed by a car in a motor accident. All of that to come in this edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. Our guest today, joining me at my kitchen table, is the founder and chief executive of Tour America, Mary McKenna. Mary McKenna, thank you very much for joining me here in my kitchen today. I don't normally start, Magnified, with a sort of a topical question because these are sort of timeless interviews, but I think this one is relevant to everything we're going to be talking about. The current chaos in our airports and with our airlines, and the excuses that have been given for that, are they actually acceptable?
0: Uh, it's really causing us a lot of grief, actually, to be quite honest with you. Um, I think this is worldwide, unfortunately, and I do believe it's uh, maybe decisions about redundancies at the airport might not have been the best decisions. And I think long term, you know, it's about people getting people um, at Dublin Airport and it has been very stressful for customers. I I do think it will sort itself out in six months time. But like every industry in Ireland, uh, we're totally affected by staff shortage.
1: But the reason I ask that is and we're going to be coming to a large part of your career in as a travel agent and in Tour America and previous crises such as 9-11 and the Icelandic volcano and recessions. There was always a very, very quick bounce back in that as soon as people had the opportunity again to get traveling, they took it. Why wasn't that anticipated as what would happen on the back of COVID?
0: Well, I think you're talking to a, a small entrepreneur, right? I think differently to big corporations and I don't know what thinking they had behind what happened at Dublin Airport, but this is not only uh, Dublin Airport, who are trying to sort it out, by the way. It is the airlines, it is the handlers, the uh, outsourced handlers, they're all at the same crisis. It is not only in Ireland, it's in every single airport, not every single airport, but most airports in Europe. Uh, and, And it's bad, and it's really bad for customers,
1: but you're all dealing with the same information pool. So did you anticipate, could you see from a time back that there would be an interest from customers in booking holidays? Because... If you would have been able to see that, then surely all the airports and airlines would have been getting all of this information. They would have been seeing the bookings coming through and they could have prepared.
0: Well, I think some people did think that way. Maybe Michael O'Leary did think that way. You know, his his process was very different. He kept all his pilots uh, within a range of hours. So, uh, look, nobody knew what COVID was going to bring. Uh, I certainly uh didn't think that way uh, because I always thought you know we'll get through it I didn't think it would go on so long but it it depends how painful that pain is financially but look uh you know
1: so you so you can understand so why some of the airports and airlines given how much cash they were bleeding yeah. decided to downsize uh,
0: so I think it you know like somebody sitting at an executive table saying we're burning cash we're burning cash the situation with, with our company is that we were resilient. We were able to say, OK, uh, we had very good government support, say we can get through this, but we'll come out of it. So uh, it, it's a very different situation. But look, Matt, right now, it's very difficult for customers. Uh, I see what comes true in our emergency uh, lines. And, you know, it's not pleasant what they're going through at the airports.
1: And what can you do from them then? I mean, if you're a travel agent, you only have a certain degree of influence. You don't have power. What can you do on behalf of your customers? Well,
0: it's very interesting. I actually think if you are a customer, you should book through a travel agent because what we can do is actually amazing because even uh, at the weekend, uh, I see all the emergencies coming in. That's really important to me. And it's, uh, you know, uh, an airline has canceled a flight. At least we're there at the end of the phone. We're 24 hour service able to say, this is what you need to do. We can go into the reservation, we can change the reservation. So we can do a lot of things. Um, And sometimes a customer feels on their own and what they need to know is they can talk to someone. Uh, In this particular case, which normally never happens at the weekend, I was actually dealing with a customer. I haven't done that in 20 years, but my emergency contact was on a flight. so And uh, all my managers were out on Saturday night, and I seemed to be the only one sitting at home on Saturday night, uh, but was able to help a customer. And I think that's the most important thing. In
1: what way can you help? Because we hear an awful lot of people, suddenly if your flight gets cancelled and they're suddenly on the internet trying to get the next flight, I mean, do you have sort of preferential access you're able to get a flight more quickly for some well, we're able to
0: tell them what to do uh you know like so we we do have access into uh the gds's to book flights uh, in this case it was just being there for the customer saying look go up to the check-in desk make sure you get on that flight you know here's what you need to do here are the tips uh and you know i was glad to see they got home safely with their family on on sunday morning
1: you mentioned dublin airport there but There's a lot of people around the country who will say, see, this is part of the problem, that everything goes through Dublin Airport, that we assume that everybody wants to fly into or fly out of Dublin Airport. Have we neglected the potential of Shannon, Cork, Knock Airports to take more traffic instead of funnelling everything into Dublin?
0: I worked at Shannon Airport. It's a brilliant airport and it is fantastic. But look, I'd ask you, you live in Dublin,
1: are you going to drive to Shannon? Yeah, but that's fine for me, Dublin. But there's lots of people who don't live in Dublin. Yeah,
0: two, and they should
1: Two th- <laughs> thirds of the population of the country doesn't live in Dublin. And yet lots of the time they're told to go to Dublin to get their flights.
0: Well, the customer has a choice. They can they can go from Shannon. Uh, there's flights out of Shannon. They're, look, you don't have the selection that you have out of Dublin. And, um, and Shannon is a fantastic airport. But at the end of the day, uh, if you're living in Belfast it's an hour and a half away they're flo- they're coming down to Dublin. Um, if you're in the catchment area of Dublin, you have a choice and it is about
1: choices. yeah, but the choices are I suppose are dictated by the airlines and that they tend to focus very much on servicing routes out of Dublin so could the airlines maybe do more about moving flights into the regions you know it, it's a chicken and egg situation to an extent isn't it
0: well I worked at Chatham Airport uh, in my 20s and it stopped at 4 o'clock in the afternoon nothing happened at Chatham Airport so there has to be a demand for it as well and and uh, they do a really good job on marketing the airport. I just see today Aer Lingus have now taken out the uh, Shannon Heathrow flight. Um, that's a big blow as well to Shannon. But it's a great airport, fantastic airport. But demand is, I think the airlines will go wherever they get their demand. So uh, I, I don't think it's coming from that area. It's coming from around Dublin.
1: Now, you're in this travel business well over 30 years at this stage. And there's been a number of crises, and I've already alluded to them, which have knocked you back and you've had to bounce back from. But particularly, talk to me about 9-11, because you had built a business, Tour America, which was offering people packages into the United States. And when 9-11 happened, what was your immediate reaction?
0: Um, I'll never forget that morning, and uh, I don't think anybody will, but I happened to be uh, sitting with my sister in Arnitz, who was my GM, and we always grabbed uh, coffee in the morning to talk about the day ahead. And uh, there was a little TV up there. And so we saw the first plane go in. We saw the second plane go in. And um, I had lived in the States. My parents got married in the States. We had a lot of relatives in the States. So the first thing you're thinking of is this is just awful for for families, for anybody living over there. And it affected everybody's lives. And, and so we were kind of in contact with our relatives. And then my sister said to me a couple of days, maybe two days after, that's the end of your business. I, I, I just remember her saying, that's the end of your business. That blunt. That blunt. We're actually quite a blunt family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, I just remember thinking, oh, my God. Because uh, the know,
1: flights have been shut down at that stage into and out of the United States of America. Um, but everyone thought that that would be... A temporary phenomenon, or did they, did they think it was permanent? At that nobody
0: stage? knew what was happening in the world. It felt unsafe, and what happened was every single Irish customer started cancelling their holidays. If they're going on holidays, nobody was ringing to book the states. I, at the time, had built a business that was a hundred percent on selling holidays to the states. So, if you picture for three months. We had no business whatsoever. All we were doing was dealing with cancellations. I had 43 staff working with me at the time. And of course, I had never had this experience before. So, um, you know, paying a, a payroll of 43 staff was going to have a an, an absolute hit to the business with no income coming in. And so I had to uh, make a decision to let 11 people go. And probably, I know it's weird saying this having gone through COVID but that to this day was the hardest thing I ever had to do because I met them individually one by one and said I'm so sorry you're a great staff member I have to let you go and and I cried every single one I felt I failed them completely because there was nothing they had done wrong and um, I remember going home that evening and just kind of nearly feeling sorry for myself and I was going cop on, you know, this is you know, this is, you just can't go to that down place and I was feeling very down and so for the next few days I kind of thought okay, what can you do, what can you do and I actually saw cruise specials coming in on the fax machine, it was fax machines then and um, I thought okay uh, you know these are really good offers, why don't we start cruise holidays and I registered cruiseholidays.ie Rang 10 of the 11 staff um, and said, look, will you come into this brand? And that brand alone in that year turned over €6 million in turnover and was the number one seller of cruises in Ireland and Northern Ireland. And to this day, Cruise Holidays is the number one seller of cruises worldwide.
1: But how did you manage financially at that time? Was your bank supportive? Did you have reserves? I mean, you must have had sleepless nights wondering where the bills were going to be paid.
0: Well, you know, it's really funny. I have to say, in 27 years of business uh, with Tour America, I've never taken out a loan. So I I did this. Look, I didn't go to college. I I, I didn't know how to run a business. I, I started, you know, with very basic experience, saying, "Okay, what you take in, you can't spend more." So I ran quite a lean company. Like when I started in 1995, I was in a little awful-looking office in Eden Key. We had second-hand furniture, so I didn't. There was no, there was no class at the start it was like the staff were paid 50 pounds a week and I said look please just bear with me got to build a brand we've got to be there at the right price to the consumer got to give the consumer really good service but we've got to build a business so in very simple terms I was actually quite lean in running the business so I kind of always felt you you don't get loans from the bank you know it's just you know and in particular when you start a business they weren't that engaging they really didn't really care so i kind of built a business and said i'll do it on my own i'll live within our means and so i it, that decision was made on if i continue to pay out this salary then i will run into financial uh, problems so i what i did was i made the decision there and then it was a tough decision but it was based on making sure the company survived and it was sleepless nights um but I learned so much from that experience. And, you know, so now as a, as a business leader, I don't know what I am really, but, uh, you know, someone who's learned a lot over the years is the importance of having cash in the business to get through those tough times. So September the 11th was a really important lesson for me as a, as a business leader to make sure that I am not in a position where I have to let go of 11 staff. And that's probably going back to your question about the airport, that we can survive, you know, <laughs> COVID was a tough one now, but we can survive through rocky times. And so the business was built as a business, not a lifestyle. I, you know, Tour America is, is is not a lifestyle business, it's a complete business that's there to make sure it gets through the good, the tough the bad times.
1: Why did you decide to go into the travel business?
0: Well I uh, had a wonderful father, an amazing dad and he was involved in travel my parents as I said got married in the States and my dad was a real staunch Irish man born in Belfast and he wanted to bring up his kids in Ireland and he was the most loving kind father uh, real sportsman and he was into the GAA we went to Crow Park every Sunday and he was into soccer and Celtic was his soccer team and Liverpool was the soccer team and he was the first person in Ireland to do charters Uh, soccer charters. Um, So he worked with his younger brother, Andy, and Andy was a a true entrepreneur, had started Atlas Travel in San Francisco, and asked my dad to start Atlas Travel for him in Ireland. So dad, Frank was his name, set up Atlas Travel. But he also set up a business that he had a great passion for, which is soccer. So I met Grain Zunas. Paki Bonner was a great pal of his. He just loved soccer. So he worked seven days a week. And as kids, um, I think really to give my mother a break at the weekends... We were brought into the office on a Saturday and Crow Park on a Sunday. So um, on Saturdays, we went in and we took the Hoover and we Hoover the office for Lily, the cleaning lady, and we got donuts. And I always thought, God, that was fantastic. Um, But he would always say, you know, introduce the staff, be very respectful, really kind. And um, it was like a work ethic. And he would say, you got to work, you got to do different jobs. And we then started going to the States probably when I was about 14 or 15 over to see all my relatives. My mother lived in the west of Ireland, Blacksod Bay. She took the boat from Cove, uh, she was one of 15, uh, to New York and then sent home money and brought her siblings over. So she had a lot of sisters uh, living in the States. So we spent a lot of time in the States. So I always thought... I'd love the States. And um, anyway, I never worked with my dad, which is a terrible shame because I think I would have loved to have done sports trips with him because I'm mad about sports as well. Um, and he passed away in uh, 1989.
1: Was that suddenly...
0: Yeah, my sister had a very bad car accident in the States. Um, uh, my two sisters were in the car, and a Jaguar crashed into Geraldine, and she was taken by helicopter. She broke her neck, smashed her pelvis, and she was brought to Boston. Um, and she was very, very bad. And we all flew over, myself, my dad, my mom. My, my brother was in the Air Force at the time. And he was so upset. He was 55 years of age and he was a chronic asthmatic and he went in for a check uh, up and he had a blocked valve and you've got to remember this is 1989 and so she clocked up the top insurance that's why it's very important to take out insurance in the states that was a million pounds by the way back then back then so she was taken by helicopter to um, the hospital in Boston she was in intensive care for six weeks so she had to be flown back home to Ireland and they crossed paths He was going into Blackrock Clinic, she was going into Blanchestown at the time, and uh, he had an operation, I never saw him, Uh, you know, I was actually doing the Tour de France for him in Ireland at the time, he had me doing an odd job, and uh, we were just called in, um, into Blackrock Clinic, and it was so cold, I, I just remember... The reaction from the doctors: I'm sorry, he's dead. And it was just a complete smack in the face, like someone kicked you in the face. And then we had to drive to Blanchettstown, and uh, I remember going into my sister's room. She's two years younger than me. I actually work with her now, and I couldn't actually tell her that Dad had died. I just couldn't say the words that my uncle had to say it. I, I just completely was in shock. And my mother was only 49.
1: And so what age was your father?
0: Uh, He actually just turned 56. Uh, He died on the 30th of September and he turned 56 on the 26th of September.
1: So he was younger than you are now.
0: Yes. Yeah, he was. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, It, it was a very different time. He worked seven days a week. I've learned a lot from that experience, I have to tell you. And... You know i during covid i did executive coaching i've studied a lot of different things and and i don't want to repeat history um so i really do don't i don't want to work seven days a week even though i do work hard i want to make sure that i'm there for my family that i enjoy every moment um you know so uh, you know, as, as you know, I personally went through an accident as well. I so like that, <laughs> so well. I've, I've had a lot of reflection in life. But look, he was a, a, a great, great father. I loved him dearly. He taught me about empathy. He taught me about love. He taught me about respect. He taught me about kindness. Um, and I actually think all those ingredients are so important in business, how you treat people. Um, he was just a beautiful man. I often get... Uh, people ringing me saying they knew him. He was a lovely, lovely father, a great husband, uh, and someone who did inspire me. Like he was my inspiration. Um, he used to say to me, my, When I was in school, um, my siblings were doing better than me in school. I just wanted to play hockey. You know, I was a sports person. I, I really thought I'd be an international hockey player. I was hockey, hockey, and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't good enough. But I'd come home with uh, my report card, and he'd say to me, You've got great common sense. I was doing okay in school but I wasn't on the same level as as some of my siblings and he says you've got great common sense that's going to get you everywhere he said it's called emotional intelligence and he said Mary trust me I want people like that to work with me and he said so you've got to believe in yourself and I really did Matt believe in myself and so I thought okay I don't have this talent I'm not going to be your A student but I have common sense and my dad has told me that's going to get me everywhere. And I really believe that. And I think common sense has been very important in my...
1: So what age were you when you set up your travel agency?
0: So I set it up in 1995 and I was 31 years of age and I didn't have a clue. <laughs> to be honest, I learned so much from the process. I thought, I had, you know, what I had a lot of good things because I had done my market intelligence, I had relationships. Um, I was able to get good deals. I went and studied at night, accountancy. I was very good at marketing, but uh, there was a lot of things I didn't learn. So Tour America has been my education, my business journey, and I learned through failures and I've learned to fail fast. Um, I've learned, like, in the first year of business, I don't think I've ever told anyone this. We were dealing with travel agents and there was this very nice travel agent. I thought he was very nice. And he said to me, he was doing a booking and it was a couple of grand and he said, I can't pay you till the day before. And, and that was against our terms and conditions. But I trusted him. He said, I'll, I'll pay you. And um, and he didn't. And he went bust two days later. And and I so that was a very important lesson. I really said, don't let the emotions of someone saying they, you know, trust me, um, because I did trust him. So now everything from that day, that was a huge amount of money in that year, in the first year, um, we turned over £3 million in the first year, made £69,000. That amount of money could have knocked me out of business. But what I learned from that experience is, you know, you've got to have your terms and conditions stick, take the emotion out of it. It's, here's the contract, you pay before you go. If you don't pay before you go, that's it. For family, friends, that is the way it's run. I don't break those rules. But I had to learn that. That was in the first year. I learned about currency in year three, you know, the importance of hedging forward, the importance of understanding that currency fluctuates up and down and how to protect yourself as a business. Again, that all came because I lost £70,000 in year three. So, you know, I became a master of that. I always say I'm more into currency than I am into different things. But that was the journey of learning and failing fast. And if you don't learn from things like that, then you're going to have problems. I learned about people, staff, how to understand them, what motivates them, that everybody's different. I don't want, you know, 49 people exactly like Mary. I need, you know, the attention to detail. I need, you know, all the different type of characters working uh, with me. They were the things I learned on the journey.
1: Of course, in the 21st century, an awful lot of people are doing do it yourself holidays yeah. because they have the opportunities made available by the Internet. They're encouraged by the airlines to actually book directly. Ryanair, I think, was a pioneer in trying to cut out the travel agents as an intermediary. But people then started booking their own hotels or their own uh, locations, their own car hire. So how did you manage to continue to be in business when so many other travel agents were unable to cope with the new internet era?
0: You see, there were 400 travel agents in Ireland around that time. I can't remember uh, what year that was. Uh, But so I'll I'll tell you the story, right? There are 400 travel agents. There's now less than 200 travel agents. Um, And they were small family-run businesses, maybe husband and wife or they have their kids involved. At the time the internet came and, uh, and people were booking online, well, we embrace that. We, we use the internet just like anybody else uses the internet. And what you found is if somebody goes ahead and books their own holiday, which a lot of people still do, I always ask the question, why would you bother doing that when you can get a better deal, probably through a travel agent? In most cases, you're legally protected In every aspect, okay. if a flight is cancelled, it is your travel agent who's responsible for getting you back. They're licensed and bonded. You'll never lose your money. You know, you don't know who you're booking with. There's so many scams going on. We have net deals with Aer Lingus, so you don't have to pay in full. So, but it's trying to get that message out there. Sorry,
1: what do you mean by net deals with Aer Lingus? So Aer
0: Lingus would give us rates for the year. And they're they're called net rates. So they're different to the web fares. And so we're not... We're not a hundred uh, euros cheaper, but we're let's say we're on par slightly cheaper, and we don't have to pay in full for those. You just have to pay a deposit when you book on the web fair, you're paying in full. Um, you can change when you book with us, you can you know add on, change dates. So I just think really in terms of why would someone try and do it themselves when like there's someone sitting there who can do all the research, hold your hand. You have, in particular, Matt, during COVID, like, in particular during COVID, if you booked with an airline, (laughs) you were not getting too tiny airline. Um, If you booked with hotels, you were probably losing your money. But with us, and I'm only going to talk, I, I think travel agents did do a good job in Ireland because I... I saw what they did. I think they cared about the customers. But in particular, even as a business, it's about doing the right thing, right? And the first thing I said during COVID, I stood up with my staff and and I didn't know how long COVID was going to last. I said, first of all, you're all okay. I said, you know, I have your back. I will be in communication. You're okay. That was the first thing I did. And the second thing I said is we will do the right thing for the customer. We will do the right thing for the customer. We were the first travel company to do full refunds for our customers. We had one or two suppliers who were not, you know, doing the right thing. And I was writing letters. I won't even say who they were. To CEOs saying, you're not doing the right thing for the customer. And I'm not going to forget that. And what
1: sort of response did you get from them?
0: A lot of people didn't know how to deal with this. They, were, they didn't think ahead about their customer. They thought, oh, financial impact. But you've, if you don't focus on your customer, they will not forget. I mean, there's a saying that goes, people always remember how you made them feel. Well, it's the exact same thing with the customer. It, they will remember when you don't do the right thing. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I got back a few uh, strange responses, all right, but I, I, and I, I'm I, sure, I don't know if they even like me anymore, but actually I, I wrote down to them, it's about doing the right thing for the customer. And I, I re- that. that's in my heart. You do the right thing.
1: Go back to me, though, as well. I mean, I mentioned about the internet been another challenge. The recession of 2008 onwards. Did that mean that people just, well, the first thing that goes is a holiday because that's discretionary spending. We're not going to actually do that. Or did you manage to find a way of persuading people to actually, well, carry on and go on your holidays regardless?
0: I uh, I have to tell you, I, I never forget the recession. It was... Um I was very concerned about the currency, first of all. Uh, The currency was fluctuating, just a bit like what it's doing right now. And I was at a conference in Orlando, and I was staying in the Hard Rock Hotel um, in Universal. And I was on a cross trainer, sweating, going, what the hell do I do now? And I happened to watch CNBC, CNBC? and the CEO of Coca-Cola was on. And he said, in a recession, protect your brand. I just, I don't know, it was one sentence I didn't hear. Anything else he said, he just said, in a recession, protect your brand. And I remember uh, writing that down and thinking about it all night and saying, you don't follow everybody else. Don't follow everybody else. And I just, you know, I flew home and I was saying, sod it, I'm not following everybody else.
1: Okay, but how do you go about protecting your brand?
0: The first thing I did was I called a meeting with all my team. Uh, And I said, we're clearly going through a recession. Uh, You can see the patterns have changed. And I said, every single travel agent in Ireland has uh, done layoffs. Every single travel agent in Ireland has stopped marketing, including the airlines. Everybody has cut down marketing. And I said, "Um, and everybody has, if you're working, they've done pay cuts. I said, what if I don't do that? I said, "What if I double our marketing?" Which, by the way, I wasn't doing. I'll tell you what I was doing on it. I'm not going to do any um, layoffs, and I'm not going to do any pay cuts. But here's the deal, okay? I am going to market. I'm going to double my marketing, which I did, but I got it at half price because nobody else was marketing. And I said, "We're converting our calls at 21 percent. Could we get to 25 percent?" So. Nobody. Everybody else is is kind of gone off the radar. <clears throat> I'm going to market. I'm going to get our message out there. And uh, in 2008, we increased our passenger numbers by 56% and our revenue by 17% in a recession just by being different. That's the truth.
1: And converting the calls that you were getting into bookings. So that was 20. putting the pressure on your people to secure the bookings. Absolutely, yeah. But were you discounting then to try and make sure the people came in and did their spend? Uh,
0: I don't think we were discounting because we had really good deals. Like, So, you know, uh, no, I actually think we were just there. We were marketing. We were the only ones marketing. Nobody else was marketing. So we went out with a very clear message. We're there. The whole team were there. So everybody else cut back, cut back, cut back.
1: It's funny, there are textbooks which will tell you that is exactly the way to behave during a recession particularly because I didn't know that though <laughs> no but particularly because there are so many businesses that regard marketing as the very first easy expenditure to yeah. cut and that'll probably happen in the recession that is looming at present that an awful lot of businesses will look at the easy spends to cut and they will decide to cut marketing what are you going to do to protect your business if there is now as many suspect a looming recession
0: so how I've used COVID is very interesting so I'm uh, looking at my whole organisation, restructure, getting in new people, better people, looking at uh, a different skill set, realising that the working environment has completely changed. I need to use this opportunity. How am I going to get in the best people for our brand going forward? So I'm in that process of doing this right now. And, uh, and so here's the secret to that, okay? It's give and take, all right? I think the work place has changed and I think the hybrid is is the way forward so for me I am saying to my customer I'm going to give you outstanding service Monday to Friday but we're not going to be there on Saturday so I'm going to let
1: Apart from emergencies
0: Emergencies is 24 hours always there That's that's a provided this is talking about a sales Uh, so I'm actually saying I'm going to let go of a sale day which is a big sale day to ensure I have the happiest best staff and that's the compromise I'm making and I think I'm realising... Sorry, I
1: just want to clarify. You're going to close your shops on a Saturday. Yeah. You have locations in Dublin and in Cork. Yeah. And an awful lot of people maybe work Monday to Friday and yeah. they go and book their holiday on yeah. a Saturday and you're not going to be open to take them?
0: No, we're not going to be open on Saturday. And we, we're we online if they want to go. We do get bookings online. Yeah. Um And we if we come back to every email, every Facebook, so we, we can manage that. Yeah, I'm letting that go. That's a big, big decision. But what I'm getting from that is the best of the best staff. I want happy people. And they have said, I've just done a whole survey with my whole team. They want to have a work-life balance. And I am now saying it's really important to get that right. If I want to give good, outstanding service... And 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 they are very big focuses. I'm not, you know, I've done all the leadership for growth, the strategy, all that stuff. I get all that. But at the end of the day, it's to have the right team and to have outstanding customer service. So, yeah, I'm letting go of that. That's a big one.
1: During COVID, though, and as things stretched on longer than had been initially anticipated, did you consider giving it all up and saying, look, I've done my bit and... I've been through crises before. I can't be getting myself up for doing another one again.
0: Yeah, well, look, um, I the 20th of March, I'll never forget, coming home that day, having stood up in front of the team and locking the door of the office and um, just coming home and just saying, oh, my God, I, I don't know where this one is going. And I, I actually think I either got COVID straight away um, even though my doctor couldn't see me because I didn't have the three um, conditions that you needed at the time. I was stressed off my head. I can't figure out which I had, but I definitely had a very wobbly week that week. Definitely, without a doubt, I was, you know, inside. I was like the swan, you know. Uh, on the outside, I looked very calm to all my team and, and below that, the legs were going crazy for that week. And, and then it was about, you know... It was time to think. And uh, and Mary's become a new Mary since COVID. I know that's a weird thing to say. I, you know, was able to look at things differently. I sat back and thought a lot. I had time to myself, which I never had before. I felt actually, which is very interesting, I felt I was on a cog. I couldn't come off this cog. And so for me, it was that I was able to stop and think, which I had never time to do before, what do I want for the future? I didn't think COVID was going to go on two years, by the way. Um, I was very much involved with travel agents, trying to get the government to support travel agents. I walked the doll. I, you know i i was there behind my colleagues i didn't want any of my colleagues to fail either i i I, there's plenty of room for all travel agents and i know it was very important for for them as businesses so i got behind my colleagues as well um i used the time to look at my own health wise fitness wise even though i was very fit i changed my whole diet i started studying i did um a course in IMI it was a special offer for travel anybody in travel so I was like great so I graduated you know which I never did in my life um from UCC and IMI in uh, so I was really proud of that um and uh, so it was a, a really good time for me to look at the business and where do we go in the future so the mm. first week Matt definitely was a wobbly week and I could have run away from it but I couldn't I can't do that when you've got so many people responsible
1: how many people working for you now
0: we had 50 staff working uh, before COVID and we now have 28 staff working, but that's being built up next week. We will have 34 staff and we'll build it back up um, to where it was again.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier about a bad accident that you had. Was it nearly 20 years ago now at this stage? 2004, yeah. Can you remember it to describe it?
0: Um, well, I remember Holiday World was on, it was 24th of January, and it was a beautiful crisp morning it was just blue skies and it was a Saturday and I was going into the office to get flyers to drop them to uh, holiday world and as I always did on a Saturday when I went in my office is at the back of Abbey Street Knott's Lane cobblestones and I'd go into the office and I end up spending a couple of hours there or I got involved in everything I was quite a micro manager at that stage which I learned as well not to do as much of. And I got involved in everything. And so I was stuck in there for a couple of hours. And I had a lovely car at the time. And it was parked right outside the window of of my office. And I was looking out and I could see this old lady trying to park in front of it. And I was saying, she'll never get in there. You know, that's too tight. So I stopped what I was doing and went out, knocked on her window. And I said, look, I'm going to move back and you can pull in. And I moved back and... She pulled in and I turned around and I got smacked. Uh, I could see this. I don't know what color it was. In, a Mercedes Jeep anyway is what I'm told it was. And I saw it right in front of my face and I thought, oh, I'm dead. And it just hit me. I went up in the air. and So
1: you were outside of the car at this stage? Yeah, I was outside okay. of
0: the car. So I got hit um, uh, and uh, it ran over me. Uh, so the front the front of the jeep was on my left side and um, I, I just thought um, I'm, I'm gone I don't know how it didn't go over my head by the way I just thought oh my god I'm dead and that's exactly what came into my head I'm dead and I could feel all my ribs break the I broke all my ribs and then <clears throat> on my left hip I, I, I don't know who the man was I, I heard later that he was had an argument with his child. Uh, he didn't go out to knock me down that day. So I don't have any bad feelings about that. But he had to drive off me uh, because the wheel was on me. And he must have been a very big man because I could feel of crunch down on me. And uh, anyway, so I drove off and I punctured both Sorry, did,
1: did the car leave? Did he stay or help you?
0: No, he was in shock. <clears throat>
1: I'm not did, you gonna, re, did you retain consciousness?
0: Yeah, so I did. And uh, one of my staff, all oh, my staff came running out. One of them did Reiki on me. Fiona was her name. And I couldn't breathe. And I just, I remember looking up at the sky. But actually what was very interesting is what went through my head is first I was dying. Second, I was going through terrible pain. <clears throat> then I realized I'm alive. Okay, I'm not going to walk again. But I'm alive and I want to survive. And I stayed really, really calm. And I was looking up at all the staff. I was in terrible pain, but I stayed calm. And I was like, oh, all these little faces looking down on me. And the ambulance came and I said, look, have you got a hammer? Just knock me out. Like, I was in that much pain. And I remember going, then being wheeled into the hospital. I had a couple of very, very bad nights. Very bad nights. I remember that. And I was gone back gone you know they and they said to my family there's a 50 50 chance of survival here and um I was thinking about my poor mom was in bits and this is all you know this is how, how many accidents can she go through um she was playing golf they had to bring her down from O'Connor and I was you know anyway what I decided to do I had tore my liver as well I'd broken all my ribs fractured my hip punctured my lungs that I wouldn't move <laughs> I was like I stayed still I didn't move an inch of my body and all I wanted to do was every day get better and um so that was the 24th of January and I signed off the accounts at the end of February I was on crutches
1: but hold on <clears throat> when you were going through all that I mean did you Contemplate that you might die. Did you think about that?
0: I I thought about that when I was on the ground on the cobblestones. And after that, I never thought of that. After that, I just thought of recovery. I thought, just don't move, don't move your body because it's pain. Uh, As I said, I had a couple of very bad nights. I remember that there was there was a nurse at the bottom of my feet. There was a nurse at the top of my feet. I was in the matter Hospital. I really wanted to get out of hospital I thought you can go into hospital and die and maybe that was because my dad I don't know but I really wanted to get out of hospital I was on morphine um and actually there was, was very interesting when I got home trying to come off morphine I went through the shakes I never had drugs in my life so I you know I went through the complete shakes and um yeah so it look it was it it changed my life from that moment on
1: how did it change it what changed in your attitude
0: i was grateful to be alive i knew uh, things can happen in a moment you can be gone um i met someone uh, that was very important to me at the end of 2004 my life changed i'm very grateful i wake up every day i know you can die you don't know what can happen and um and i am i i love kind good people around me i you know I, I, I have completely changed as a person.
1: How long did the physical recovery take?
0: The physical physical recovery still goes on. Um, you know, I carry diphene around, and my back goes out. But um, so I would have had huge pain every night at nighttime. I couldn't turn, so I sleep. I don't. I still don't move in, in the bed. I. But what happened was, um, I'm with the surgeon now called Michael Keller, and he was going to operate. But I went to a physio. He recommended a physio to strengthen my glutes. And uh, he told me, uh, my physio said you're the best in class, and I went really. I said that was that was really encouraging to hear. So I doubled what he gave me to do. I doubled my exercise regime. So every second day I do an hour and fifteen minutes of lifting weights to strengthen my glutes, to strengthen my every foot. day. Every second day, because I don't day. want to look like a, a muscle woman, you know. <laughs> so I said I don't look. I, I don't. I want to look female. I don't want to look too bulky either but I really have worked around my core, my diet. Um, I lift 20 kilos and and I am in a fantastic place. They, they can't believe it. I actually taped when I went into my doctor, I asked him, could I tape it so I could listen back and hear what he said. And uh, so the mind for me is, is where I go, how do you strengthen? Don't listen to anything else. Just do your own thing, strengthen your body. I don't know what I'll be like when I'm seventy or eighty, but I'm going to keep doing this till I can, I until I have to.
1: So you play tennis, you yeah. cycle.
0: Yeah, I run. I do everything. I don't run Despite too much. I did a marathon actually.
1: Despite the pain, you did the marathon.
0: I was told my physio was Ruth O'Reilly at the time, and I said to her, "I wrote down. I've always written down my goals, and uh, <laughs> one of the goals, and, and I've achieved every single goal, but one goal was." Really driving me cracked, and it was lose weight, get fit, lose weight, get fit, and it was on every single year. And I thought marathon, and then I said it to Bernardos because I think I need, you know, I need to be held accountable. And I got five thousand pounds, I think I can't remember, was the euro pounds. When did I do the marathon? Uh, Two thousand eleven. Five thousand euros of commitment from family, friends, and colleagues. I was like, okay this is happening, this is, I thought it was huge and so I started training and uh, Ruth O'Reilly said to me, you cannot do this, your body is not able to do this. So for six months um, I'd run out to Donnery and I'd get sick, I was terrible at it now, you know, but I'd run out and run back and uh, there was two gardens, (laughs) I used to get sick and I'm so sorry to those people who own those those gardens and um, I lost a stone in the training. Like my body was literally in bits after it. So that was a goal achieved. And I went, I was invited to do New York and uh, New York Marathon is up and down bridges. Of course, I didn't know that. I did all flat training. And uh, I started the marathon. Everything's an experience. And I lost my food after the first mile and it was 40,000 people running. And on mile 17, I was so sick and I thought I was ringing home. Uh, sorry, I thought I was ringing my partner and I rang home, got my three-year-old son and I was going to say I was going to quit at this stage. I was so sick. And he said to me, he said to me, did you win mama? And I said, no, I came second. So I continued on, but I'll never forget the picture of going over that, um, line, um, And it was like, I'll never do that again. And I'll never do it again. It's done, dusted. Um, That was a bit, (laughs) it's a hard one. I know your wife does loads of marathons. I don't know how she does it, but it's tough. I've done cycles though. And uh, again, for charities, um, Temple Street and Dementia as well. Um, And again, the purpose was there. I'd never been on a bike where you had to put your feet in clits. And I did it with Dublin Chamber and it was 560k of course I did not have a clue they were going over this terrain and the inclines and I had only done 40k in training and the first day was 120k and they clapped and thought I was great and I rang home and said "Oh, I'm like, what am I going to do? I have four days left of this, I can't continue and I had to cycle the next day standing up because I was so badly blistered. <laughs> But it was great fun, and uh, again, that was uh, that there was. A good you just don't of give up. No, and you learn. Like so, I didn't. Uh, so, I cycling was a lot easier than running. No, so but I think.
1: I think in general, rather than cycling, you just tend not to give up.
0: No, but again, the purpose is there. If I didn't have the charity behind it, would have probably given up. And uh, but you know, I was being held accountable, and and I like the fact I can push myself outside my comfort zone. It's where I grow. And it's where I've got most satisfaction.
1: Chris, the business developed, as you said, after 2001 on the back of cruises. Yes. And I have to ask you about this because I know that when we've covered cruise options as holidays and our travel spot on The Last Word, um, there's a couple of reactions come in in relation to it and potential threats maybe to the business in the future. One is the fear which was caused by all the publicity in relation to COVID spreading on mm, cruises. Yeah. And as to whether they are actually are safe now to travel on. And the second one, which increasingly is coming across, are environmental concerns from listeners who feel that these giant cruise ships, which are billion dollar investments and are which are the most extraordinary constructions, are not good for the environment. So what fears would you have for the future of cruise holidays, given those particular concerns?
0: Yeah so just to put it in terms I'm very lucky because I sit on the advisory board of the different cruise line uh, companies in the UK so I'm actually privy to a lot of information uh, and what they're doing about the future and so like I have to give the name of this because I can't remember but they do have um, the liquefied natural gas as fuel uh, going forward so they're going to have um all the new ships going forward are going to have that. They are really conscious about the environment, and even if you're on the ship, you know the water um, is, you know, all that all the facilities they have, they do all their own um, recycling. Um, they're very conscious about the environment, so they're putting twenty three point one billion into future technology for cruise ships. So I think what you'll see is all the new ships will have all these technologies that will deal with the environment. And what they're doing with the older ships, they're putting them in scrap yards. So, you know, there's less cruise ships now than there was in 2019. 23, I think 23 or 24 have gone to scrap uh, yards. So I, I think watch this space. They're going to get it right. I mean, it's a massive business it's you know so important in ter- in terms of job creation the uh what they bring in to the different uh, ports they go into um it's really important for you know some of the countries they go into are very poor um and they bring in revenue that they'll never get and they go into countries like haiti and into some of the ports in the caribbean so They're very dependent on the cruise business, so they have to get that right. They do have to get that right. It's very important that they that they get their ships with the new technology, with the new, Mm. uh, you know, environmentally safe way going forward, Um, and that's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, fuel consumption, also even just the construction, because by some estimates. A cruise ship would actually probably do as much carbon emissions as almost the entire road fleet in Ireland.
0: Yeah, but like they're one percent of the maritime. Like it's not a, It's like if you look at all the cargo ships, it's still not as big. So I look, Matt. I think they'll get it right. They're from sitting on these panels and being involved. I can see there's a huge commitment. I mean, the CEO of Celebrity is so into the environment. Lisa's her name. She is just everything. Her first conversations is is all about what they're going to do, the new ships of the future so i think there's 25 new ships coming and you'll see a huge change and, and i think they will get that right they have to get that right
1: and what about the COVID issue i mean the idea that you know all this we saw the publicity in the early days of COVID of people stranded on ships that they weren't yeah. left off them
0: yeah uh, you know i think they're dealing with that quite well you still need to get an antigen test to get on the ship so you know <clears throat> that's affecting you know. Business as well, but I think that's the right thing to do to make sure anybody gets on the ship. The States is a very different place than Europe, you know. So they're quite anti-antigen tests and don't really believe in COVID. So it's I've been on two or three cruises uh, during COVID, and so I, I think the cruise ships are doing a very good job. They are testing, you know, while you're on the ship as well, and. What you've seen now is 2023, there's a good interest in cruises. Like, it's a great family holiday. Like, I... I, I don't I don't want to push it or sell it but it's just such good value like you've got everything on board
1: the image is that it's for sort of old age pensioners
0: well um, the average age right uh, the average age overall of cruises is 49 and the Caribbean is 43 that's the statistics that's the age so it's not um only 15 percent are actually 14 percent are over 60.
1: Just to finish up, you mentioned that you do sort of goals and you put down lists. So what have you got on your list of present for things that you want to do?
0: Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm hoping to announce in September I have a new business, but I can't go into the details. But again, going into the luxury uh, market. So uh, in travel, in travel. Yeah, well, that's what I know. I mean, I could do many other things, but I don't think it would be any good. So t- taking the learnings of everything I've learned and I have learned a huge amount, um, I really think you know when I look at I don't know if you've heard of net performing scores uh, lots of travel companies use FIFA or um, uh, what, what's the other uh, customer testimony we use a net performing score and which what does it, that mean it means when you come back from a holiday not when you pay us the deposit when you pay us the deposit you're as happy as anything and you should give us a five when you pay because you picked us as a, as a company to book your holiday what we want to know is when you come back everything so you rate us out of 10 if it's below eight we call what did we do wrong what can we learn so from our net performing scores uh, last week we had a full 10 the week before we had a full 10 the week previous we had an eight because an airline lost customers bags and we got a zero from a customer like you know and but from the as net, if
1: it was your fault that the airline lost well, their bags
0: you know but that's when when you're annoyed you've got to take it out in someone but that's where sensitivity around the net performing score but it really gives you uh, an indication so we're able to ring that customer and say look really sorry that your bags got lost here's the Here's how you track it. Here's what you do. You know, we learn from it. But what we've seen is we really want to get into the high end, hold your hand, um, give outstanding service, be very different to any other travel company. And I think we're doing that well. Um, And the feedback I get, the happiest I am, it's not about profits. It's about what does the customer say? Will they recommend? Have we truly given them a memory that means a lot?
1: Mary McKenna, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. So that's it for today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, part of a continuing series. So please follow us and recommend us to friends if you like what you've heard. And there are lots of other previous editions in the series, which if you enjoyed today's podcast, I think you would most definitely enjoy many of those as well. So please give them a listen. Magnified with Matt Cooper is sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in hybrid or all electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. So, until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you for joining us.
0: Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.